0: what we're actually seeing now and and part of this is driven by social media we've got a lot of egocentricity in the world just individuals believing that um the whole world is interested in what they're saying and that you know what they say has value and importance and so that actually kind of puts people up on this pedestal within their own world and that can be quite challenging when you've got Young people raised to believe that they understand, and they do, they understand their own mental health, they're much more aware, but they also are much more aware of their own rights, but they don't have the same sense of community and obligation to others, so it's imbalanced.
1: How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker and CEO of Speakers Institute, corporate and world sport coach. This is the inspiring great leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders Podcast. Today we have an incredible guest joining us. She is a corporate mental health advisor and former practicing psychologist specializing in trauma prevention and treatment. She is the author of several best-selling titles like The Trouble with Trauma, Why Men Are Like Shoes, Now I'm very curious about that one, Define Your Inner Diva, and her latest book, How to Heal a Workplace. Her journey into this field is incredibly unique and personal. After an accident, she suffered from PTSD, which ultimately led her to a year of therapy, helping her resolve issues and move forward in a positive way. Not only is she an accomplished mental health professional, but she is also a trailblazer in her field. In 2021, she won the Excellence in Science and Technology Award for her groundbreaking work in delivering online trauma therapy. And that's not all. In 2022, she was awarded the Bronze Stevie Awards Maverick of the Year. Oh, I like that. Uh for her unique and innovative approach to mental health. Her story is one of resilience, strength, and passion for helping others. So without further ado, let's welcome Kerry Howard. Kerry, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Craig, for having me. And what an introduction. <laughs>
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. And it. uh, you, you've had a, a very exciting career so far and, but I want to go back a, a little bit first. So where did you grow up and tell me what was the big dream when you were a young child?
0: Ah, now I was actually born in Melbourne. I'm the youngest of five children and, uh, mum became a sole parent when I was 15 months old. So that changed life significantly. Uh, I remember being a four-year-old at preschool and uh, everybody else wanted to be a ballet dancer, but I do remember the fireys coming around on the big fire truck. And I thought that might be a pretty cool job to rescue people and put out fires. Um, probably not different to what I do these days, really, <laughs> <You> rescue people <laughs> and put out fires. Um, but, you know, I think over, over time growing up childhood, we moved around a lot. So um, I went to like, three primary schools and then I went to four high schools in four years. So, learning to adapt and adjust to different situations was something I got used to when I was pretty young.
1: Hmm. That obviously that um, deep connection to serve was obviously the when you were young if in regards to you know being a fiery where you want to serve the community and you a lot of the work you've done over your career is, is focused around how do we serve people and support them and and help them heal in a way. Uh, yeah,
0: and that would definitely be true to say. It's always been one of those areas of focus, helping. You know, what can we do to help others?
1: Hmm. And you talk about, you know, your mum uh, when you're 15 months old, becoming a single parent. So, you, outside of your mum, was there a really strong role model in your life? Uh, maybe more towards your teenage years that really helped set you up for who you are today.
0: Actually. It was mum who did that, because um, in 1973, when uh, Gough Whitlam came in, he brought in a whole bunch of social reforms that then enabled women in this country who had been deserted um, to be able to get access to things like education. She went back to school when I started primary school and uh, went on to university and became a teacher. And she did all of that because the government sent her a letter in 1974 and said, how about you go and do an aptitude test, and if you're really clever, we'll send you to university. And so she did, and they did. And you know she'd always worked in a in a factory and stuff. My dad had told her she wasn't very bright. and it turned out that she was quite bright, and she decided to make the most of it. So I think when I got older, um my you know, probably not so much through my teen years. I would never, because teenagers don't look to parents for role models, right? Mm. <laughs> in fact, they want to be so not like their parents. It's not <laughs> funny. Um, but, you know, I think more when when I was sort of in my young adulthood, because I also had children young and I became a sole parent, uh, she really sort of then gave me this model that I wanted to emulate, I suppose, and, and show people that you can change your stars is probably really the way I put it
1: beautiful I have a a nearly seven week old baby and she adores me right now so I'm not looking forward to those years where she doesn't want to be around (laughs) no the thing is though she'll
0: always love you because you're the dad it's mum she won't want to talk to through her teen years so just make sure you're you're still readily available because you'll be the
1: idol okay well we'll we'll make sure we have some words with her about looking after her mum as well are you, so, for you, obviously having a single mum, like did did you find that you were always kind of searching for that other parent or that other sort of you know uh, person that you could lean on, um, or was mum you know as you mentioned being a really good role model for you? Was she she that rock and that all you needed during those formative years?
0: Um, actually, it was funny because I just had a conversation with my brother about this on the weekend. Um, we were talking about the fact that actually what mum did was raise us to be very independent. Um, And we are all sort of in our own right quite independent, but it's actually probably so extreme that it's not necessarily as healthy as it should be because when we get into challenges or difficulties, we don't tend to lean on each other or ask each other for help. Um, And so it's interesting in that way, I think, what... What she demonstrated was a level of stoicism that then, you know, we all kind of um, followed along and and replicated really. Um, So I think that taught us to be strong and and have a level of resilience and not let things get to you. But then (laughs) as a professional in the psychology world, I recognised that that was just repressing everything. So, you know, uh, whether it was the right way, it certainly was the way that we were able to get through the difficulties. And I think it's one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about. It's it's quite common. It's not necessarily healthy. And uh, I think there's an important distinction there.
1: Mm. Yeah, good point. Uh, and you, like, make a good point there around, you know, we are the product of our environment. And, you know, a lot of that, I'm sure, in your line of work, you've you've had to kind of unpack for a lot of people who... Uh, maybe not consciously we're aware of that may be limiting them or maybe even helping them succeed later on in life you know for people how how important is it to try and understand you know that environment we grew up in and and how we can either leverage that or um help us become a better person
0: It's actually far more important than we give it credit for, especially in western societies and when I wrote The Trouble With Trauma, that was actually in 2020, and uh, I released it in November, uh, actually because I was trying to give people through the pandemic some, you know, support and advice and ways to understand and help themselves. But in that, I actually explain the unpacking of your early childhood experiences and why um, those experiences leave their scars in certain ways but they also set the foundation of our negative belief systems now we then learn to adapt through our primary school and high school years in particular how to adapt and adjust and change the way that we behave to offset the feelings that we have that come up in the, the, those negative feelings that we have about ourselves but sometimes those you know reactions or responses or behaviours aren't necessarily helpful to us as we get further in life. Hmm. So part of the you know challenge around how we it, it's about how well we understand ourselves and I talk about building self-awareness and building self-awareness is actually hard. Building self-awareness is difficult because you have to be able to take a good hard long look at yourself and understand you know the negative things that you do, the positive things that you do, what drives them or or doesn't, what we react to, why we react to them. And, you know, self that self understanding is absolutely key to be able to move forward in any, you know, interpersonal situation. So it affects work, it affects relationships, it affects, you know, lots of things. And ultimately, if we don't learn how to manage it properly, it'll affect our health.
1: Mm, 100%. Uh Talking about health, uh, at some point you were hit by a bus, if I understand, and, and literally hit by the yeah. bus. We, we talk about it metaphorically a lot of the time. It feels like we've been yes. hit by the bus. Uh, yeah. Tell me, um, how did you manage to get hit by a bus and, you know, kind of what was the context to how that kind of shaped you following that accident?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I was 28 years old and I had two and four year old daughters at the time I got hit by the bus. And uh, it was interesting. I'd gone to a concert in Sydney with a girlfriend and this girlfriend actually had some physical issues and and suffered from depression. So again, my role in that sort of um, experience with her was actually, you know, there to support her and and make sure she was okay. And uh, it was late at night after the concert had been at the SCG and and basically there's just crowds of people and, and we'd come in from the country on the train. We didn't even really know the area very well. And uh, because we couldn't seem to get a bus or anything, um, we end up walking a couple of blocks with these other people. But I worked out in that couple of blocks that their car wasn't anywhere near as far as, you know, where we needed to go. And I kept trying to look for a bus And I just believed that this bus lane was one way. And there was a whole, it'd take me forever to tell you that story, but there was a whole bunch of reasons why. And um, anyway, but the buses wouldn't stop. And I got panicked about the fact that, you know, we were going to get left in this park all alone in the middle of the night. And I was running to catch up with these other people and I literally ran from behind a bus that had just passed us and refused to stop straight into the path of an oncoming bus and didn't even look because I actually thought that road was one way. It took me a long time to work out why I didn't look, but when I actually got hit, it was interesting because my friend had been behind me and she saw me and she screamed at me and, uh, I turned around to see, I didn't, I still hadn't seen the bus, turned around to see what the issue was. And the bus actually then hit me on the back of the shoulder because my husband had had a motorbike accident many years before, and he'd been in the hospital with people who had head injuries. I kept saying to myself, don't hit your head, don't hit your head, don't hit your head. And I kept thinking about my daughters and, you know, what would happen if anything happened to me. So I think that's what kept me on my feet and i was in shock immediately um i actually broke the indicator off with my forearm and i just remember when the bus stopped i was looking down at the road and i'm like oh no the bus driver is going to be so mad i broke his blinker you know (laughs) and i bent down to pick up the blinker and went to hand it to him through the window and he wasn't there and i was really confused because i'm in shock right Mm. and i walk around the front of the bus and the poor bus driver was down on his hands and knees looking under the bus because he just assumed I was under there. Oh, wow. And then he saw me and he looked at me like I was a ghost. And I just, and then he burst into tears. And I felt just terrible that I had done something so stupid. And how could I not even look? And it took me a long time to work out why I had acted in the way that I had. And that's what I mean, you know, when I said, I, did, I thought it was a one-way bus lane. Anyway, at the end of the day, um, the, my my sense of responsibility actually then, you know, laid into a whole lot of psychological challenges. I developed PTSD. I ended up with secondary depression um, because I kept blaming myself. And that's when I started to, you know, engage in some therapy. I uh, started off on medication And no, I went to therapy first. The doctor wanted to put me on medication. And I was like, no, I went to therapy first because I was really stoic, right? I'm going to be fine. Um, I wasn't one of those people. (laughs) And then after about three months when I wasn't functioning, I just really struggled. I would get out of bed in the morning and my eldest daughter was at preschool and so on. I remember the first day I got out and I put my dress over the top of my 90. And I drove her to preschool, dropped her off, came home, took my dress off and got back into bed. And I went, there's something really wrong. Mm. And that's when I went back to the doctor and I started medication just to help me function because I just wasn't functioning. Um, But it, it was a long process. And it was because what the bus did was I talk to people about the fact that our negative beliefs about ourselves that we accumulate over the course of our lives, all of the memories and things that we have about the difficult challenges that we come across. I talk about it like you've got this inbuilt toy box and every time something bad happens, we open the lid, we shove another thing in and we shut the lid. And by the time we get to adulthood, it's overflowing and we spend our time trying to jam it shut and, you know. What happened with the bus was the bus smashed my toy box to smithereens and everything was all over the road. And no matter how much scrambling I did, I couldn't seem to pull it all together. And it was all of the feelings that I have from childhood about not being good enough, being stupid, doing something wrong, but also it activated the other elements that were outside of my control, the powerlessness um, of my recovery, the pain that I was experiencing, but the fact that it was all my responsibility. And this is the thing with trauma. And it's one of the things that I write about is that trauma, the biggest impact of trauma is about whether or not the person takes responsibility for what's caused the trauma If there's no responsibility taken, it's actually easier to overcome. If you have an accident and it's quite clearly not your fault, you overcome that much quicker than if it is your fault. So there's a lot of shame and guilt that's associated with the, you know, catalyst that causes that sort of traumatic intervention anyway.
1: Mm. Yeah, fascinating. And so, you know, working through that process of, you know, being hit by the bus, then the PSD, PTSD, for you, What? how did that lead to having a career in psychology?
0: I was actually in the first year of my psych degree when I got hit by the bus and I had to take a year off. Um, and I experienced, I did some EMDR therapy and, and that's why actually when I uh, finished my studies, I became an EMDR therapist and now consultant. And uh, the technology I developed is actually an EMDR tool. So because I had found it was a very effective treatment for trauma, I was then really keen to make sure that what I focused on was trauma because I say to people, the bus kind of saved my life. There was a lot of stuff that I'd been repressing for years that was probably eventually going to give me cancer or something if I hadn't dealt with it. But the bus allowed me an opportunity I had to take a year to do it, but at least I was able to clean out my toy box and, um, and start fresh, you know. So, and I used to get cranky actually, because after the bus, when difficult things happened, I used to be able to just suck them in and, you know, soldier on. And then I couldn't. Then as difficult things happened, I had to take the time to process them as they happened, um, which is actually a much healthier way of doing things, but... <laughs> it was annoying to me at the time
1: i bet you know so you talk about the the toolbox uh toy box there and um how can people you know take an assessment right now around is their toy box overflowing is there are they are they trying to stuff things into it um is it at the right amount how can people kind of take that assessment to better understand themselves around okay maybe I need to deal with this or maybe it's okay. I'm absolutely fine.
0: I think, um, spring cleaning is always good for anybody, right? So I say, if you have an idea of your toy box, we have an idea about the things that you're carrying around with you. Um, I think it's fair to recognize that some people will have some really big toys in their toy box that take up a lot of the room and other people might just have a toy box that's full of lots of little things. And, you know, anybody who's ever seen the the demonstration where you get, you know, the sand and the rocks and the water, and you always know that depending on the type of thing you put in there, you might always be able to shove another thing in. Um, I think it's the point of recognition where we start, we're feeling stress, we're not sleeping properly, that we're um, noticing that we get cranky, that, you know, you want to come home from work and you're yelling at the kids and kicking the dog kind of stuff. Um, Don't ever kick your dog, by the way, but, yeah. (laughs) So it's that feeling I think that it's almost like Groundhog Day feeling of not being really happy Mm -hmm. day day to day, and it doesn't seem to change much. That's usually the point in time where most people will kind of go, you know, they go looking for help or they go looking for answers. And this is a big part of what I'm trying to do now is actually give people tools so that they can self-manage their way through it with coaching, like a coaching model of mental health. Because there's been the, the health system and, you know, the way that we set these things up creates a dependency around mental health that I don't think really needs to be there it does for the pointy end of things but for a lot of people who just need to better learn to manage their own life experience and improve their self-awareness and help themselves they don't really need to go and see a therapist an hour a week week after week Um, they they need to apply some different kind of principles to their life and they need to understand how they got to be in the situation that they're in.
1: So you talked about emptying your toy box, so to speak, uh, for you, how do you prioritize your self care and mental health now in a space where you're also dealing with other peoples or helping other people through theirs?
0: So when I was working in full-time trauma therapy treatment, (laughs) um, I used to organize, I, I took a lot of time out. I used to make sure I limited the number of clients that I saw every week. I would make sure that I had active um social engagements through the week so I'd, you know I had trivia night where I'd go with my friends and I'd always go on a Friday night with some, you know, go out with friends and and made plans for, you know, weekends and catching up with people because I'm an extrovert. So being around other people is, you know, good for my energy. If you're a different kind of person, you might want to spend a little bit more time doing, you know, quiet things for yourself, reading a book, spending time at the beach on your own or, you know, going for a walk or whatever it is that you do. But I think it's working out what are the things that help to rebalance you as an individual, because we're all different, and making sure that you factor those things into your life. I used to always do one dance class a week because I I love to dance and it gives me an opportunity to express myself. And then I would factor in at least one weekend a, a month away. And every three months, I would go on a more decent trip. And I used to be overseas twice a year. And because I knew that being overseas and being in other sort of cultures and experiencing different things was the thing that gave me joy and and made everything else, you know, much more worthwhile. So certainly when I was seeing, you know, clients all the time, one-on-one, that's, that's how I was managing it. It's a little bit different uh, now, but spending time outside in the garden and those sorts of things, I find it's just the things that, bring you a feeling of, you know, contentment or joy.
1: Uh it's interesting talking about uh the garden so we I haven't had a place that's had a garden or a property since I left pretty much left home back in 1998 whenever it was. Yeah. Uh but we we bought a house up on the Central Coast uh in Australia back in August and we have a really nice um property that has you know, lawns and gardens, etc., And it's really fascinating. I find myself going out every day and there's yeah. some days where I go, there's, there's not really anything I can do here, but I just, I, <laughs> I want to do something and it's quite fascinating how calming it is. I mean, I'm not a stressful person, but no. for whatever reason it draws me there. Uh, and, you know, I think it's important for each person to find what is their, you know, the, the, place in nature so to speak you know how can you find that whether you live in a busy city uh, where you've got lots of apartments and and not much gardens etc versus those that live out on a big farm like i did when i was young i think our nearest neighbor was a mile away yeah Uh, so how can you find that because i think it's what nature does to the mind and the body is quite phenomenal
0: yeah it is and i think um we've got so used to a very fast paced lifestyle that, um, sometimes we, we don't even, we've sort of, we sort of forget about it. We don't even realize how nice it is until you end up somewhere that's, you know, quite lush. And then you're like, Oh, wow, this is amazing. But you don't think to necessarily factor, um, that, you know, deliberate, time in nature into you into your day. And I say to people, I mean, I love apartment living, don't get me wrong, Mm. because, you know, I like not having to maintain the garden. (laughs) I like being in the garden. I don't necessarily want to feel like I have to, you know, do all the weeding and stuff. So um I lived in an apartment for a while and there was a big park next door. And so I have a small dog anyway, but it was always nice made active plans to go and walk in the park. Um, A big part of what makes us feel better is actually just getting exposure to sunlight. And it's one of the things actually I talk about in The Trouble with Trauma. In Australia, we tend to limit our sunlight exposure either by, you know, staying indoors or covering up or lathering ourselves in, you know, heavy metals and wearing sunglasses and hats. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not for a minute saying that we don't need to do that to protect ourselves from skin cancer. That's absolutely true. But by the, on the flip side, we actually have light receptors at the back of our retina that um, that respond to the different rays in, in sunlight, that when we wear sunglasses don't necessarily trigger the melatonin in our skin. And so we may actually wear sunglasses and be more exposed to, you know, some level of burning on our skin. It's, we don't know all of the little different nuances, but what we do notice is that the more we've protected ourselves from sun exposure, we've also seen an incremental increase in some of the mental health stuff that gets presented. It could just be coincidence. Um, But, you know, when we spend a little bit of time outside and get a bit of sun, I reckon we're little solar panels. We need a little bit of recharging, you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) hundred percent. It's good for energy management. Maybe we can do it. Uh, early in the morning and later in the evening so we don't have to worry about the exposure to skin cancers and things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. That is a real danger uh, yeah. in this day and age. Your new book, How to Heal a Workplace, is quite interesting. I think, you know, talking using the sunglass analogy a little bit, I think sometimes people have the sunglasses on too much inside an organization and don't quite see uh, what's happening in there. Mm. And quite often we miss uh, miss seeing in someone or or in the environment uh, things that can be quite detrimental to the health of a human being or the health of an organisation or the health of a team. Uh, so, what was the driver bef- behind how to heal a workplace?
0: So the main driver was uh, that I was seeing, especially post COVID. Um, I've always had a reasonably large client base that was, you know, workers' compensation-based issues, um, workplace bullying and harassment, some of the other challenges that come up. But I also, over the, you know, my trauma sort of background, had seen a lot of people who'd started off with a physical injury and then ended up with a secondary sort of psychological injury because of their, you know, inability to recover from the physical stuff. So it's this awareness that Um, we spend, you know, the majority of our waking life in the workplace and especially post-pandemic when people were trying, you know, employers trying to get people to come back into work um, and not just everybody stay working from home and yet some people were busting to go back into the workplace and I think there was this just recognition of the world of work was never going to be able to go back to the way that it was and we sometimes have these hard lines drawn around, you know, well, um, you know, some organisations oh, well, we paid for all this office space and so people have got to come and use it, you know, um, and there's not really an adjustment made for the individual. And a big part of that is because our society is based on, you know, rules, black and white, you know, what what does the law say, what's in the policies, what's it. And we don't really make much allowance or adjustment space for, for individual needs to be taken into account. And, you know, what I saw in my psychology practice was the the very extensive fallout of what happens to somebody when they're injured and it's not handled properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the book I talk about the interaction with insurance companies and how that actually tends to prolong and make injuries sort of, you know, much, much longer and causes bigger issues. And I wanted to write a book to help people understand that, we can actually prevent these types of injuries and that there are some really simple systematic ways of approaching things that will, you know, minimize the risk and, you know, that there's a, a an understanding of, well, what's going on in in the current work environment and maybe, you know, why our workplace culture is actually so toxic these days and what do we need to do about that to to sort of help improve it because everybody was talking about the great resignation and, you know, lots of these other changes that really meant the employer market needed to pick up its game to retain its people. And this was a big part of it. And everybody talking about wanting mental health support in the workplace. So that was probably the main driver.
1: Hmm. You touched on something interesting around uh, the workplace, you know, toxic workplace, you know, with, you know, shifts in, understanding and awareness and leadership uh, not not just since COVID but pre-COVID you would have thought that toxicity would have reduced over the years um, because you know we, we should have greater understanding we should have greater awareness is that actually what you were seeing or are we seeing maybe the toxicity now shift in a different way and people are just really aware of themselves and the workplace they're in so it's now becoming a bit more prominent
0: i think i think in some ways it's a little bit more prominent i think what we used to see before was a little i want to say more gender driven about you know dictatorial styles coming from you know the most senior male kind of thing and as we had more uh, feminine influence and more balance within the workplace you know that some of those issues were raised and so that had to be sort of altered and the the I want to say the society starts to shift but what we're actually seeing now and, and part of this is driven by social media we've got a lot of egocentricity in the world just individuals believing that Um, The whole world is interested in what they're saying and that, you know, what they say has value and importance. And so that actually kind of puts people up on this pedestal within their own world. And that can be quite challenging when you've got young people raised to believe that they understand and they do, they understand their own mental health. They're much more aware, but they also are much more aware of their own rights but they don't have the same sense of community and obligation to others. So it's imbalanced. It's like my rights more important than yours. So, um, mm. you know, as an example, sometimes you can have a person who does have a diagnosed mental health condition. And yes, that does need to be taken into account, but it can't the, on the flip side, it's not a get out of jail free card. So if we have anxiety in the workplace, We need to recognize the anxiety, but rather than the anxiety just being used as, but I've got anxiety and I need to stop here. There's a recognition at that point that it's kind of like, okay, so I recognize the anxiety and okay, we don't need to go any further, but what could we do today so that tomorrow when we do this again, it's not going to raise so much anxiety for you? Because in reality, anxiety is just fear so we need to understand what's driving the fear about the outcome that this person's kind of getting concerned they're not going to be able to achieve because that's really the driver behind why they're saying they feel anxious in that moment and because we've got very good at labels i just think that the younger generation as they come into the workforce and you know they're already in the workforce it just it's an adjustment phase that they really struggle with and you know they'll we see a lot of staff turnover in some of those younger age groups because, you know, they don't like it. They don't have the problem-solving skills nor the resilience capacity to work their way through it. They just sort of disappear and go and do something else. And I'd like to see that that didn't happen, actually.
1: Beautiful. You've you've opened up a couple of (laughs) thoughts in my head there. Uh, One is labelling and one is around ego. So let's maybe let's tackle labeling first because i think that's a little bit easier than i think where i'm going to go with ego uh so from a labeling point of view you know it's really interesting people you know no matter what generation we don't want to be labeled but then um we don't be really seen to be labeled or be labeled but however quite often now they're positioning themselves and labeling themselves um and it's kind of like we we don't want to be excluded but now we want to be included but actually we want to label ourselves and be seen above or or seen different again so i find this i find it quite fascinating um this conversation around labeling it's because we we don't want it but we want it
0: so i can give you a good explanation for why actually the basic element of any social change is always the extreme before it comes and settles in the middle somewhere so if we look at gay rights as an example it's kind of like no 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 that doesn't happen anywhere to you know oh my goodness it's wonderful and everybody should be able to embrace their you know sexuality whichever way and then it gets settled into you know okay well it doesn't really matter one way or the other you're a human being great you're here let's get on with the job and that happens in any social reform. Look at the, you know, um sexual harassment in the workplace is another example. No, 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 that never happens here. Oh my goodness, it's everywhere. And then we need to settle back into the middle ground. Mm-hmm. So I think we're in a bit of a social transition space around, you know, the fact that we've got this mental health awareness that actually the pandemic has helped to, you know, raise the mental health literacy of the whole community. So we've got more conversations, more recognition, understand that it happens more. It's not just the silent thing anymore. But we still seem to approach mental illness like it's different to standard illness. And the thing that I like to talk about is, I I sort of say the pandemic, if it taught us anything, it's that illness is only temporary until you put the word mental in front of it. And the issue is that somehow because we can't see it, um, we seem to treat it like it's a lifelong experience when it's not. Mm. And um, I was I was telling you before we started that I'd been having some challenges with an insurance company recently. And this is exactly the same thing. They had excluded me because of my bus accident about having any other mental health issues ever in my life, like blanket. no. And it doesn't matter that you know, the challenges that I was trying to explain to them were just a a, a virus in my life, a blip in the, you know, grand mm. scheme of things. Um, They don't care. They just sort of, you know, know that's a blanket forever. And yet if I'd broken a leg or I'd, you know, done something else to myself, they're not going to exclude me from never having a leg injury again. And I think this is the issue that we have with mental health issues across the board. We don't We can't see them, so we don't understand them. It's what a person's telling you, oh, well, we don't necessarily believe them because we can't see it. And I think it's this recognition that we have to get to a point where we stop assuming everybody's, you know, telling lies or trying to get something else out of it, and that we could just approach things and take them on face value. Um, I think then we would stop the labelling elements, what you were talking about before, is really about it's I'm not okay if somebody else tells me this is what I am. But if I decide that's what I am, then I'm going to embrace it and show the world everything because it's, it's basic group belonging psychology stuff around. Am I in the in group or the out group? Mm. I don't want somebody else to label me because it might put me in a group that I don't, then I feel like I'm being excluded and pushed out of the group because this person says I don't belong but I label myself because I want to belong because this group actually makes me feel like, you know, I'm a normal person as opposed to not, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, It's a a fascinating and fascinating how it plays out, uh, you know, in society um, and those social change. I was uh, having, uh, I was delivering a, uh, an event earlier today and I was, I talk about gravity of leadership when we're talking about the creating an ecosystem, not an ego system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's pretty much impossible to remove ego, right? There's always ego there. It just depends on what level it is and how can you, um, I suppose not balance it, but how do you allow that to flow in an environment? Uh, so you were talking about egos there before. How important is it to have awareness of your ego and know when it's, uh, I, I suppose going into a balcony point of view where it's actually useful to have your ego come alive um, mm-hmm. versus when it goes into a basement where the ego becomes too much and it affects the ecosystem of a team or a culture or organization.
0: I think, well, cause it depends on the, the definition of ego. I think that you take on, but you know, go back to Freudian sort of ideas about the levels of it that, that persona that shows up in the external world and how they, you know, tend to exert themselves in whether it's influence or power over others. And so um, the awareness of their skills and abilities and all of the things that they bring to the table and, you know, whether or not they then try and one up themselves with other people in the room has an awful lot to do with the judgment that they place on the people that they're around. So when we talk about, Um, and I don't know if you've got a particular example of ego that you're thinking of, but I often see when you can be in a group environment and, you know, you're with somebody who seems to put everybody else down. And usually that's just because they're trying to make themselves feel better, actually because they don't have a lot of self-confidence about the group that they're in and they're trying to kind of usurp it. Um, It's not a helpful, you know, Thing to do as a leader because it doesn't engender any sense of you know people following you because they are there to support you and they would you know back you going into you know any sort of battle. It tends to be um, more about you know they're scared or or they're just going to do what they need to do to just you know get get people off their case or out of their face kind of stuff. And it's a big part of where I talk about in the book when we look at doing change in any organisation tends to be the biggest risk point and leaders will often not ask their people what, you know, what solutions they can think of to a particular problem because they go, I'm the leader and that's where the ego comes in. I'm the leader. I've got the answer to the questions. Mm-hmm. I know what to do to fix this problem because that's why I'm the leader. And yet I'd say actually it's a much stronger leadership position to, you know, listen to the people who are the ones who you're trying to do the change to make their working lives better and, you know, make everything operate more efficiently, why wouldn't you consult them about change that's going to affect them? So that's where I think ego can sometimes show up and the the sort of stronger or more dominant actually tends to come from a sense of, um, I want to say, imposter syndrome playing out in the workplace. Maybe
1: i know coming from new zealand where in general they're very humble people and show a lot of humility it's not i think maybe because of the tall poppy syndrome it is it's you know it's kind of it was frowned upon especially when i was growing up to talk about the achievements that you had done or even share those Mm -hmm. yeah i think we're seeing society shift a bit more where people are a little bit more a lot more open now because it's like say, for instance, for me, I, took, I never talked about winning national titles ever. I didn't mm-hmm. even know I ha- how many I had up until no. I kind of sat down and went or when I was learning, uh, doing some speaking training around uh, being able to position myself at the beginning of a keynote. And I think sometimes, like for me, I'm very comfortable in sharing what, I, what I've achieved now because it's, it's an awareness thing that people don't even know. So so why not share it if it's an awareness thing, as long as you don't use it in a way to say, I'm better than you. And it, oh, it's all context.
0: I noticed that difference. I spent a couple of months in the States uh, the end of last year, came back in mid-January, and the American market always, I find it really fascinating to see the difference between Australia and, and the American market because they're really comfortable with um, not only talking about themselves, but actually praising other people for their achievements. Yeah. And it is something that we we really don't do in Australia. And I think we still do have quite a bit of tall poppy stuff. Um, But I also think that depends on what your driver is, people who are more inclined, you know, I'm reasonably humble about the different things. Sometimes when I put all of the things on paper, I go, oh, really? Oh, yeah, I did. You know, um, I remember the first award I ever applied for, that was It was a great process because it actually made me feel more justified that I was even okay to be in the race, you know. Um, But it's just I think people who are are out there to do things for other people and, and support others or they've got some sort of altruistic driver for what it is that they're doing are not inclined to be, you know, walking around telling everybody how wonderful they are because the driver is not for their own personal gain or or promotion and I I just think that there's a difference in that and I I think the way that we can show up and talk about the the things that we've done and done well um it's certainly nice to stand and and have that acknowledged but you know as long as we're not doing the Muhammad Ali I'm the greatest you know
1: (laughs) because that doesn't uh, it, it it doesn't bode well for uh group dynamics really well he was at uh at one point he was the greater, so he could <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm quite happy well, for him that, to share that. It's real. <laughs> yeah.
0: But that that's the thing. I mean, in that moment. Yeah, in that moment. I mean, but that's the other thing I like to point out about context. In that moment, in that country of the, you know, boxing athletes that were available to him, um, who had trained in that particular way, then yes, he was, but you know, there there might've been many others around the world who, you know, might've been just as strong or just as capable or, but they had a different style or a different approach. Mm. And that's where I think that it's important to have some of that context or, or, perspective on it because, you know, yeah, it, he could have been the greatest at that point in time, but um, in a, in a small, you know, world really. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure.
0: It's one of those things about sport. Don't get me started on sport because I often feel a bit the same about that. But we are a sport driven country. But I just think we put an awful lot of importance in what is a game at the end of the day.
1: Of course, but uh, yeah, it, it's obviously one of those things that unites a country as well. If we talked about politics in a country, <laughs> I don't think that unites us as easily as uh, as a sports team can sometimes, although it can divide us pretty quickly as well. So
0: Yeah, exactly. It's the one thing I laugh about being in Melbourne. You get to Melbourne, it's like, who do you barrack for? It's kind of like, I really don't even turn my television on on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it certainly is very much, uh, very parochial um, yeah. between, you know, which footy team you, you follow down there. Absolutely. Group dynamics, right? It, so. is, it is. The people want to feel like they belong to something. Actually, actually, I feel like in general, though, people from Melbourne uh, do feel like they, they have a strong sense of belonging to to who they are as Victorians in a way. They may not always follow the same things, but compared to other states or even other countries, I actually find the the belonging and, inclu- and kind of connectedness in Melbourne quite strong.
0: I actually think that that's based on the multicultural impact of Melbourne because you had a lot of people who came in from other countries and by embracing um, some Australian group norms, they were able to find, you know, a place and there's lots of those kind of overlays that come from, you know, well, well, what makes you feel like you belong. And uh, yeah, it, it's a, a significant element of it because um, the football sort of stuff was, it is so prominent there hmm. and it becomes an immediate identifier.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about healing a workplace, um, how much of how much of you know the the role does the leadership of the organization play versus the actual individuals
0: well the leadership can drive a lot of the the cultural elements really um their behavior or the way that they sort of respond and react to things that happen in the work environment really do set what's allowed and not allowed in any culture. So then the individuals, depending on the hierarchy of the organisation, you know, will follow suit or if they don't like it, they'll leave and go somewhere else. The interesting thing about the stats around workplace cultures that were toxic, it's like 80% of workplace cultures are toxic. But out of those toxic environments, if you break down the 100% of, you know, staff, There'll be 33% who will, um, you know, react strongly and they'll be the ones who'll put in, you know, the claim to fair work and complain and, you know, scream from the rooftops that this isn't right. And, you know, they'll usually stand their ground and fight the situation rather than leave. You'll get 40% of people um, who then will just sort of sit there and tolerate all of it and, you know, put up with it. I'm just, my brain's going, my numbers aren't going to add up. But anyway, Um, and then there's about 27% that will immediately leave in the face of any obvious sort of, you know, particularly aggressive toxicity, sexual harassment or something like that. But if more than 40% of people will just sit there complacently watching the toxicity happen and do nothing about it, then the majority of these people that we've got sitting in these difficult sort of environments are not doing anything about changing it or you know getting out of it or doing anything it just persists mm-hmm. and it's actually the complacency that's probably the biggest issue in a lot of organizations because they get to the point where they're oh better the devil you know than the devil you don't um oh yeah this place is isn't great but it's it's better than the last place you said the last place i worked you know um and so they'll often tolerate and put up with things that aren't good and it's a bit, I say to people, it's a bit like, you know, the frog in the boiling pot of water, right? It's kind of like, if you put it in cold and then you turn it on, there's not an awareness that the water's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. There's just an adjustment that's made. And it's the same thing that can happen in a workplace culture. Mm. Where we usually see big, obvious problems and where people call me in tends to be that you've got a new CEO that's come in and there's something that's happened and they can't seem to work out what's going on in this culture there there might be blockages at different points and they don't really understand what's happening and it's very much often um there's you know the structure of the organization below the CEO has got its own little mini organizations and so that that tends to be a bit of a blockage and the hierarchy of an organisation can also impact, um, you know, how much influence the leader uh, can have across the board. And so a big part of that is actually having a look. When I, I go into an organisation, I'm not just looking at the frontline issues that a person might bring. I'm also looking at, you know, what are the systems that uh, surround these people to, you know, make them do their work effectively and, and you know, where they get their frustrations um are often around sort of blockages that they've they've got in the in the work process. So there's some interesting things around leadership, but of course the individual has a responsibility to you know turn up and and make a, a positive contribution every day. And that's one of the other things I touch on in the book is that when we know that somebody actually has a personal problem going on, it's impossible for that not to affect their work. So if you know somebody's going through a relationship breakdown or somebody's partner's got cancer or their parents got cancer or their child or they have you know these are things that are all normally going to affect how a person shows up every day, their mood, their behavior um, and how do how do we kind of approach that with in a supportive way um, while trying to make adjustments for the rest of the workplace rather than, just ignoring it and pretending it's not going to impact because oh, that's your personal stuff and just drop that at the door, mate.
1: Hmm. So if there was you know, one key takeaway that if anyone read your book uh, would take away that you, you feel is most important for leaders or business owners around the importance of awareness and proactively, I suppose, driving a positive workplace that um, supports the mental positive mental health of the employees what would it be
0: it would be the fact to remember that your business doesn't exist without your people so taking the time to understand who they are as individuals and consult with them whenever you want to make uh, changes that are going to impact their working life is is not a nice to do it's essential
1: Very good. I like that. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. What was the last time, uh, when was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: Actually, it was in December. So I went to Peru in December. I've got a bit of a growing interest in uh, psychedelic treatment for mental health stuff. So I went to Peru to do an ayahuasca journey and uh, try that out. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. But interesting journey, Uh, not something I would do all the time. (laughs) It had a pretty strong physical effect on me. But the other thing I did while I was there was uh, I went to Machu Picchu, which was quite an amazing experience, but I also climbed another mountain so that I could get a view of Rainbow Mountain. And that took me up to over 5,000 um, feet. So that I should have had oxygen at that point and I didn't, um, but it was just, it, it was an amazing experience. Um, the hiking elements are probably something I haven't done as much of, but I really enjoyed it and uh, would probably look to do a bit more of that again.
1: Beautiful. I haven't made it to South America yet. That's definitely on my list of places to see. Actually, I'd probably like to go to every single country in the world, to be quite honest. <laughs> Absolutely. What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: Yeah, I think I think if I could work out how to solve the the power issue that we have in the world, I'd I'd like to find a way to stop power corrupting. If if we could you know use it for positive stuff instead of using it to manipulate that would be one thing i'd love to solve
1: yeah for whatever reason we have a a desire for many human beings for more and yeah i think that's where a lot of the power comes in right because we want more more of something Mm. who is an uh for you what is an inspiring great leader and who is someone that resonates with you as an inspiring great leader
0: so I always talk about um, if you show me somebody who has experienced difficulties and challenges and are prepared to stand up and talk openly about them, that's an inspiring leader. That's a person who's not trying to pretend that everything's great and wonderful but actually using their challenging life experiences to help educate others in an attempt to maybe stop them making the same mistakes but or, you know, or prepare themselves for when that happens. I think that's a big part of it. You know, if I think about people who have real influence in the world um, and make great leaders, I, I've always had a bit of a thing around Oprah, and I think it's because for my generation, she really represented this anomaly uh, when she first became really quite popular, and she had just an incredible ability to to bring to the world um, some great perspectives that helped us build our self-awareness and understanding of of ourselves in many different ways. And, uh, you know, when I was 19, I actually approached a TV producer because I wanted to be Australia's version of Oprah. That was my, you know, I thought I could do that. Um, And he looked at me and he said, Kerry, I think you've got the charisma, but where's your credibility? (laughs) Which is why I went back to uni to do psychology. I just needed (laughs) give me a piece of paper, maybe then, you know. I actually don't think I approach things much differently now than than what I used to. Probably got more mature about it, but yeah, she really was a big. I think because she represented diversity in so many forms, and yet here she was, um, you know, in this leading kind of TV thing that was that everybody got to see. It was pretty amazing to me.
1: Mm, fascinating. Now you've talked to a lot about the how to heal a workplace and some incredible other insights. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that would love to learn more about what you do. So what is the best way people can contact you?
0: So um, my website is com. Uh, That's Anne without an E, by the way, and Kerry with a Y too. And um, if you want to follow me on socials, you'll find me at Kerry Howard Psych, just P-S-Y-C-H, or on YouTube, it's The Pink Shrink.
1: The Pink Shrink. Well, we'll put all those uh, links in the show notes so it makes it easier for everyone to find um, a connection through to uh, Kerry today. Uh, look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and the depth and breadth of looking at trauma, uh, looking at how we can heal more effectively, uh, even understanding maybe ego a little bit more and, and why people may avoid labeling or dive into it. But your human experiences, your life lessons and how you have utilized those to share and make a positive impact on the world is quite phenomenal. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to uh, continuing to follow you and, and kind of see where you take the rest of your journey in life uh, because your impact so far has been quite something. So thank you very much for an enjoyable conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thanks, Craig, for making the time. I appreciate it.
1: It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring inspiringgreatleaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages, be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.